0: Hey there good people in crypto land. This is Matt Lysing. This is my podcast, Decent People. Just a quick program note, we're taking a couple break, uh, a couple weeks off here. So um, there won't be any new episodes um, for a few weeks, but don't worry, we will be back with a whole new batch of interviews. And in the meantime, we're going to roll out some of our favorite episodes that we've recorded over the last year and a half or so, in case you missed them or wanted to hear them again. So hope you enjoy that. Thanks a lot. And we'll
1: see you again soon. Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or Blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now to the show.
0: Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of the P- Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and we've got a guest on today that I've been waiting for a couple weeks to speak to. I'm very excited about uh, it's Ryan Breslow. He is the co-founder of Bolt and a new um project in the crypto world called LoveDAO. Bolt, as you might have heard, is um, competing with uh, Amazon and some other payment services to uh, enable one-click payments at checkout, um, both I think at retailers and online. And LoveDAO is um, a crowdsourced uh, DAO that is going to try to upend uh, the way that pharmaceutical research is done. So I'm really excited to talk to, to Ryan about that. But First, welcome, Ryan. How are you today?
2: Matt, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be on here. And uh, yeah, no no complaints.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so I, I did a bit of research on you. And it's pretty easy. Um, you guys, the listeners out there might have read the story in Forbes on Ryan earlier this month. Uh, Bolt uh, has had a valuation somewhere upwards of about $11 billion, uh, making Ryan one of the younger billionaires out there in the tech world. As I was doing my research, I loved coming across this part where you you grew up in North Miami, if I'm correct, and then your parents had a golf course and you um, you worked at the golf course and, and one of your jobs was um, shagging balls out of uh, the, there was a water, I guess a, a water trap or like the, the guys at the driving range would hit into water and then one of your jobs was to shag the balls, is that right?
2: Yeah, so my, my dad actually has a local standalone golf driving range where you hit balls into this lake it's kind of a throwback business that's been there forever (laughs) for decades and um yeah so i was always like cleaning people's clubs going on this tow going on this small boat and fishing balls out the balls would float on the water i
0: love that story because that was one of the first jobs i had at a golf course near my house in la I, I was the guy that drove the little cart, you know, so this was all on grass and then you drive the little cart and you pick up the balls and then, you know, you kind of recycle them to the, uh, the driving range.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, it gets nice and hot out there, especially in South Florida during the summer.
0: LA too. In the summer, it was brutal. And I wanted to ask if anybody ever tried to hit you while you were getting balls.
2: People would do that. <laughs> uh, my dad would tell them to stop doing that <laughs> and, uh, you'd wear a helmet. Really? When you went out there, yeah. So just a little extra precaution. Yeah, want to yeah. get hit in the head with a golf ball. Was,
0: yeah. So I'm in this little cart, and it's got a cage around it, of course. But man, people, I would go close to the, the to where the tees were, and they would just nail me. <laughs> I, I remember just I can still hear the sound of the balls hitting that cage. Um, so. Oh my god. So tell me a little bit more about your childhood. Do, do you have brothers and sisters? And you, like you said, your dad had a standalone um, driving range down there. What, what else What did they do? That was my dad.
2: You know, he worked very hard uh, as a small business owner. Um, my mom worked, you know, secretarial type roles at different small businesses. So grew up very middle class, um, have a younger sister as well. Went to, you know, public school, went to... You know some large, overcrowded public schools where most of the, you know, I was middle class. Most of the the population was below the poverty line. Over fifty percent at at my high school. So grew up in a, you know, very diverse environment. Um, Not you know necessarily. I was always building websites and stuff at home, but not necessarily didn't necessarily grow up in tech. Um, As you know, many of my friends. I was lucky enough to get into Stanford, um, and I went there. And you know, a lot of kids grew up; VC's as parents or big tech executives as parents, and it was all brand new to me. I mean, I, I had no clue. I didn't know what a startup was. I couldn't <laughs> yeah. find that word when I got yeah.
0: so. You mentioned about working at the golf course. Did, did you and your sister kind of like work at your dad's businesses as you were growing up? Was that like just kind of part of the family life?
2: We did, yeah. So I would. You know, run the shop and run the range. You know, when my dad needed time off, my sister would as well. I worked a lot when I was a kid. I mean, I had a job as a bag boy at Publix since I was 14, where, you know, I was making minimum wage there. And uh, my parents really, while they didn't have the big, you know, tech jobs to teach me about that world, they did teach me the value of having work ethic and discipline and putting in the time so i was working a lot of my childhood my two grandfathers also had started small businesses that ended up kind of not having the best exits but had some good runs and you know ended up making some bad decisions and you know losing most of their money so while you know we didn't reap the financial reward of those of those businesses as a family i saw a lot of mistakes that people could make, and I was very exposed to small business growing up.
0: Yeah, that's and that's gotta be valuable, right? I mean, on the one yeah. hand, success is great, but on the other hand, what is it? Eight or nine out of 10 small businesses don't make it, right, so it's, it's important to kind of know the pitfalls and try to avoid them when you're launching your own thing.
2: Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, running a small business is really tough. It's, uh, as you said, so many fail, unlike venture capital you know a lot of times people are putting their own money and livelihoods on the line so when they fail or in a you know it takes their whole life and potentially their family down with them
0: so you mentioned the bag boy stint at Publix. um i loved uh looking at your resume on linkedin and you know you've got a lot of cool jobs um you know obviously bolt and love dow um, you're the founder and a dance instructor for the movement. And then uh, at the very bottom it's bag boy at Publix. And that made me smile because my wife's family, my wife's from Florida and her family all grew up in Jacksonville. So the the boys were the bag boys and the girls were the, the cashiers, um, as you probably well know. Um and I wondered if it was still like that with the the sexes kind of segregated when you were there.
2: Um, that's a good question. I mean, there are definitely more males bagging and more uh there were definitely more gals, you know, cashier, the cashier. Being, cash, yeah. being the cashier. I mean, it wasn't a hundred percent each way. It was, you know, there was definitely diversity. I mean, so I don't think it's a knock on the, <laughs> the grocery store necessarily,
0: no, but yeah, I'm not saying it like right? that. I just, I just always thought that was, you know, kind of funny and a little archaic, yeah. but, and what do you think you learned there? Like working at, at Publix and bagging groceries? What, what was that like?
2: Well, You have to stand there and, you know, engage with all walks of life. There's so many different types of people that come through a grocery store, especially when you're at a Publix and not a Whole Foods, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of at a baseline. Line grocer.
0: Yeah, exactly. For people who don't know Florida or the South, like it's it's you know it's not necessarily high end. It's not low end, but it's not. It's kind of like middle to low end, kind of grocery store, basic stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And a great business, a great grocer. They treat their employees really well. I have a lot of respect for the company. Um, but yeah, all walks of life come in, and so you're taught to to deal with everyone as a human being. You can't avoid anybody. Um, you've got, you have to give them a good serve, you, you know, give them good service, engage with them, say hello, be positive, help them with their needs. People will surprise you with the amount of diverse things they might ask you, uh, whether it's to run products back that they don't want to purchase anymore or certain things break, or they want you to go grab things. And, um you kind of have to deal with just this wide swath of people, emotions, situations, you know, one after the next, right? It's like a new person every 10 minutes, every five minutes. I'm very fortunate for that experience because, you know, afterwards, it, starting these next businesses, it was much less diversity, right? Stanford was much less diversity. Um, There it was just like human was a human and you interacted with with everybody
0: yeah I'm, I'm out in la and i shop at ralph's a lot and i think this started in the pandemic where they just really didn't have anybody bagging groceries you had to do it yourself and then they've kind of kept that going <laughs> now that we're back to normal and i would like kill for a bag boy because i'm really sick of bagging my own stuff
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we make good tips
0: <laughs> Did you i would
2: to- uh, I did. Yeah. Like
0: take stuff out to somebody's car for him or something like that.
2: Yeah. would always offer to take your bags out. 80% of the people would tip you if you took their bags out. 20% would stiff you and just say thank you. And um, you just had to, you know, smile and wave anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So
1: what were you doing in
0: high school, uh, like academically or did you play sports? Like what was your high school life like at that time when you were bagging groceries?
2: Well, given my dad's business, I was captain of the golf team, and then I tried the opposite end of the spectrum. so I was on the wrestling team uh, and which I loved as well. I worked really hard academically because I didn't see too much of a future for myself in South Florida. Now Miami's different uh, back then, it was you know there's not a, not a ton of opportunity. Um, you get into real estate or tourism, but like, uh, I wanted to kind of get out to Silicon Valley or to New York or something like that. So I'm like, I got to get into a good school. So I worked really hard academically was, you know, kind of top of my class, great scores took a ton, you know, just made sure that I was put everything I had on the table to get into a good school
0: was Stanford always the goal? Was it like, because it was so close to Silicon Valley or, you know, what could have been in Cal or could have been other places? Or was it like, that was it? I want to go to Stanford.
2: Um, I didn't think I would get into Stanford because the acceptance rates for out of California, um, students are just so low that I kind of wrote it off. I really wanted to get into Ivy league schools. I got into a couple that, that I didn't, were my first choice. I got rejected for some of my first choices. Stanford ended up being the last school I heard from, very last one out of maybe a dozen I applied to. And uh, was just shocked when I got in. And you know, it was interesting was that I think they're the only school where the admitter writes you a little note on why you got in. Oh really? And it wasn't my sports, it wasn't my grades. I mean, I'm sure that had a factor. It wasn't my extracurriculars. I did a bunch of community service and stuff like that. It was, uh, I think on their application, others I didn't write about as much, but theirs had some questions that led me to write about my businesses. And I'd started all these different online businesses in high school. And they were just like, that's super cool. That's super unique, those businesses that you started. So that stood out to us. And that's why you got in.
0: I never got that because I applied to Stanford and didn't get in. So (laughs) good for you. (laughs) Were you into crypto at this point yet? Or like this is right around kind of when the Bitcoin white paper was coming out. Were you in the same kind of time zone there?
2: Exactly. I got into school 2012. So kind of not too far after the white paper. When I started, I didn't know about Bitcoin. But I ended up taking this class called Startup Engineering, started by Balaji Srinivasan from uh, Council and Coinbase and Andreessen. This was before stint at, before 21, before Andreessen, before Coinbase. He was telling the class about Bitcoin and he'd host these hackathons like twice a week. He would stay up all night for people who wanted to hack and code. So there were roughly eight of us who'd stay up, do all nighters with him. Would be there till like six in the morning, and uh, we'd talk about Bitcoin. And he was just a wealth of knowledge, and he would just lecture to us, like privately, like teach us about all these things that he had learned. And so the eight of us, plus him and another professor, Vijay Pandey, started the Stanford Bitcoin Group. Oh, really? In early twenty thirteen.
0: God, what a great a mentor for you to have I'm, I'm sure there are like millions of people who would kill to have that kind of access and one-on-one uh, mentorship from him
2: yeah i mean it's so lucky right to have he's a genius right those the j and village are genius level and to have that such a close proximity to him
0: what kind of like lured you in or hooked you on Bitcoin? What, what part of it, because there's a lot of different things a lot of people uh, you know, take to it for different reasons. What, what was it for
1: you?
2: For me, it was, you know, been, I've been very passionate about economics, money, how it shapes society. I ran a philosophy club at Stanford where we talked a lot about societal issues, generally become disillusioned with the financial system. And uh, Bitcoin was the first thing that I had awareness of that, was, that presented an alternative.
0: So you would have been, in the financial crisis, you would have been right in high school then, right? So you were probably aware and, and willing, and I mean, able to kind of understand what was going on in the broader economy and around the world, right?
2: Exactly, right? I saw that firsthand in high school. I was reading a lot about it. And yeah, it was great timing right as I entered college to be exposed to blockchain and Bitcoin. I'm like, this could really be an answer or at least a plan B for society. In case those who govern our financial systems don't end up succeeding or can't address all of society, could this present a second route for people to still be able to transaction function? So I'm like, this could change the world, and the technology was incredible, right? It's like, who designed this? Um, it's unbelievable. Uh, so it was just, I was enthralled, you know, obsessed.
0: And that has sort of um, the seeds of Bolt in it, right? Is that where you sort of kept going on and into the payments sort of space, and and originally thought you could create something where Bitcoin was the payment rail?
2: That's exactly right. So I wanted to make it easy for people to use Bitcoin. We're starting to build a hosted wallet that made you easy to send and purchase on on on-ramp to Bitcoin. Um, And in doing so, I learned a lot about uh, risk and on-ramping and payments. And I was like, we got to be able to send this money, uh, send Bitcoin to someone and know who they are without in a low friction way, but where they could run off with the cash, you know, how do you secure fraud against a credit card payment? How do you make the user experience easy? And I was like, wait a second, don't, doesn't everyone deal with this? Like what company is working on user experience tied with security for any checkout? And so after a while of working on this for crypto, I was just like, wow, we should build a general purpose checkout that bridges user experience with security. That became the modern day, now vision for Bolt.
0: That was, yeah, where Bolt came from. Um, and and was it uh, also a factor, I mean, back then, I think as you meant, like you were alluding to, the infrastructure around Bitcoin was pretty minimal, right? It was like, kind of like, you had to build it yourself, especially if we're talking 2013. Coinbase had maybe just gotten off the ground, but you might might have to be going to Mount Gox and you know, we all know what happened there. And so was it was that also a kind of like it was just like god, oh, this is great technology, but there's just nothing supporting it.
2: That's exactly right. Mount Gox, Trade Hill days, like it was really early days. You know, also we had to get banks to work with us. So I spent a year of my life flying around the country talking with bank executives and compliance teams create a spreadsheet of like 10,000 banks. And I reached out to everyone that would talk to me and I was trying to convince them to work with us. So I was educating bankers on Bitcoin all day. The tech was super hard and janky. We're starting to make some progress and we got some banks to work with us. And we had multi-hundred page compliance programs and just, it was a slog. And so when I came up with the idea for, for general purpose checkout, it was kind of like, whew, like I don't, you know, I'm gonna take a break from crypto for a while. We'll come back to it later once it's a little more established. Yeah. And that's what we're doing now with Bolt is we're starting to reintroduce crypto into our
0: checkout. Now, as you built Bolt up into, you know, a multi-billion dollar valuation company, you've you've made some waves by, you know, kind of taking some swings at folks in Silicon Valley and and some in the, you know, kind of like VC world. Do you, do you feel like that's coming back from like your background about sort of you know being working you know middle class having jobs as a kid working publics and is that and then you know you kind of get into the Stanford world where like you mentioned it's the sons and daughters of CEOs and people who are running corporations does is, is that do you think you're carrying that kind of with you through your like your adolescence
2: maybe I mean it's definitely your background defines who you are right so. That background definitely has a part to play, you know. I'm generally, uh, I'm excited. I've, I'm very pro-builder, right? Like I work with a lot of builders. I've been mentoring, advising founders since day one. And there's nothing that pains me more than, than folks who get on a cap table or, or you know, say you need me, and then end up causing issues with the company or not, not making decisions that are pro-founder. So, I wanted to speak up about the problems that I saw, not in a sense of I'm right or they're wrong, but just these are things that should be said to help balance the discussion, right that I think others were afraid to say. So for me, I just saw it as, hey, you know, if, if anyone's gonna say something, I might as well. and um, you know, I uh, I welcome and hope for, you know, anyone I spoke up regarding to... Take that to heart and change, and be better for builders. And um, you know, nothing against them in the long term.
0: Yeah, no, I I hear you, and I I support a lot of that because I do also share your frustration with some VCs that you know that they've got a checkbook and that's about all they've got. You know, and they might be guiding you in certain ways, but, you know, it's the hard work of the folks that, you know, are getting that money that's really the important part. And that's where all this stuff comes from. You know, it doesn't come from um, somebody at a a VC fund just giving money away. And I I love, like, reading through your Twitter feed and there was one that stood out to me. Uh, You just tweeted, intellectuals kill companies. And I just wanted to ask you uh, for a little bit of context or background on that one. And, And is that kind of part of, like, your daily thinking about stuff, or how how, how, does, how does that like uh, work into to what you're doing?
2: Um, I had seen through the experience of now building multiple companies, com- complex thinking cause significant delays and almost kill companies. And so I think if you can't explain what you're doing very simply, uh, you're not focused. And I had made personally the mistake of hiring people who were very smart, but didn't value simplicity, right? They would value talking forever and writing extremely long things. And if you can't translate your intelligence into a simple plan, then you're of no use to an organization. And you might actually create more confusion and harm than good. And the worst thing is some of these people end up thinking they're helping the organization, and you know they're so smart and they're pointing out all these things. Um, and so I don't necessarily value intellectualism in my companies. I want to work with smart people, but I want to work with people who understand business impact and how to tie their intelligence to business impact and how to get focus out of their team and those around us and and how to drive alignment and harmony with those around them, not more confusion.
0: Does that tie into um, what you've called work theater? Sort of like this idea that people are just need to look like they're working um, and when they're actually not really doing anything?
2: Yes, that's exactly right. It's easy to get lost in, you know, an owner of a business has to deliver, right? If you say to your investors, here are my goals, I'm gonna report on these goals, they are held against the fire to deliver impact. Um, others, understandably, are more distant from that accountability. And so as my, my job as a manager is to hold people accountable. And the managers that work for me, their job is to hold people accountable to things that matter as well. And so one of the things we coach, I coach all my companies on, is eliminating work theater right making sure the people who are working for you know that results and impact are what matter not looking good in their work and and you know they can even be a little bit messy in their work if they're delivering results that matters way more than how they appear to be working
0: yeah that that resonated with me because i worked for many years at bloomberg news in new york and it's a pretty intense culture there and and this work theater idea i think manifested itself where People wouldn't leave their desks, you know, like they would stay until 6.30 or seven o'clock. They're not really doing anything, but they just want to be seen at their desk as though they're doing stuff. And I was like, that always drove me crazy. I'm like, just get your job done, do a good job, and go home, you know, go have fun, do something else. (laughs)
2: 100%. And I had some of my best people doing that, right? And then they'd come to me in six months and say they're burnt out. And I was like, Well, I didn't want you to be at your desk until 8 p.m. every night. I didn't ask you to do that. Like, you're delivering great results, but there's a way to do that without being at your desk at 8 p.m. every night. And here are some other people, I'd point to some examples where they leave at five or six, but they're getting just as much done, right? And they call it, they're offline, you know, they'll answer if it's important, but I care about the impact, not the appearance, right? I don't need to see that you're slaving for me to like you, yeah. right? It's, and actually, we, we started Conscious Culture, which was how to bridge execution with humanity, and so we stopped praising hard work. Um, we know, If you can get the same amount of work done in less time so you can go have fun with, with your family, then great. And if you're having impact in a sustainable way, that's actually best for the organization because you can be with us for the long term, and you're you're demonstrating that that is possible, that health is possible to all of your peers.
0: Is the four day work week that you guys have instituted a part of that? Yes. And are you doing that is. across all your companies, or is that just a bolt, or, or where is that taking effect?
2: That's just a bolt for now, but these are things that uh, you know are all on the table for all the other companies at the right time.
0: Okay, so. Now back to crypto and like you're doing Bolt and kind of you've pivoted to like just payments in general and, and competing, you know, with, with the Amazon buy now button and all that stuff. When did, um, so Ethereum kind of came into the, the conversation around, you know, 2015, 2016 for sure. Is that where, or when did you sort of come into, you know, Ethereum? Because we're, we're going to get into that, obviously, when you're creating a DAO, um, that's, that's all, you know, Ethereum based. But I was just curious when you came across Ethereum for the first time and what your kind of initial reaction to it was.
2: I uh, obviously heard about Ethereum quite early on. I think that as time has gone, I've became more bullish on Ethereum. I originally thought Bitcoin was the answer and consider myself more of a Bitcoin maximalist. I have recently over the last few years had my eyes really open into the power of DApps and DAOs. Um, I think they're still extremely nascent, but I think they're going to change the world, and it's just a matter of time. And so, obviously, with uh, with what I'm doing with Love, um, I'm a firm believer in Ethereum's importance and the roles that DApps and DAOs are going to play in the future.
0: Yeah. So let's let's talk about Love and where where did it come from? Like. I know a lot of people who found healthcare companies or, or, you know, pharmaceutical like companies or have they have a personal reason, you know, a lot of times like something that they like a family member or themselves or something that is kind of driving them to do this sort of thing and, and take the, the, you know, it's, it's an incredibly intense and expensive and and long and painstaking process to do drug development. Is there, do you have a personal connection here with any of that or how, how do you come at it from, from yourself personally?
2: I've had some very personal experiences with health including family members cancer runs in my family, heart issues run in my family, certain uh other diseases like auto like Crohn's disease and and others also run in my family. So yeah, I've just I I've been through the ringer. My my mom is a multi-time cancer survivor. My dad has had substantial amounts of health issues that um, he's really struggled with. Uh, he's recently lost most of his vision and is now legally blind. Many other members of my family have had cancer. Uh, list goes on. Um, myself, um, I have an autoimmune disease. Um, and then I also uh, had chronic back pain during early days of Bolt um, at the like age of 22, which I was muscular or spinal, and I ended up learning through alternative therapists that it was stress-related. And this was one of the biggest uh, light bulb moments for me personally was I had such serious back issues at such a young age, and I'm like, what's going on? You know, I, I did wrestling, I did gymnastics when I was a kid. I'm like, did I mess something up when I was young doing those things? I was going to spine specialist, back specialist, physical therapist. And I finally went to a person. I can't even describe what they are, like a healer, like a spiritual healer, as a last resort that someone referred me to. And they told me that it was all stress-related. And, and you were
0: carrying it in your back, basically. In kind of my back. It was manifesting.
2: It was manifesting in my back. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't dance, which I loved it. I couldn't work out. It was ruining my life. And when they said that, I really heard it. And I was like, whoa, I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah. And I've started to work on stress and calming down, which is now a huge part of my life, yoga and meditation particularly. Within a few months, the back pain eventually completely went away. Wow. And hasn't returned to this day. And my back is, works like it's brand new. And so I was like, oh my God. You know, through that journey, I had met many other friends who were suffering with back issues and who were, some were 12 surgeries in. Wow. Cause, you know, once you have something, these other people, you know, you start to know others who have it. And I'm like, what if theirs was also just related to their mental state? Right. Do they really need these surgeries? I wouldn't want to broach that topic with them because you know, they're on their own journey, but, and they have the reasons for doing surgery or whatever, but I'm like, how many diagnoses are leading people to severe surgical or chemical paths that could have been prevented with breathing a little more and, you know, getting better sleep and doing some yoga?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I wanted to ask you, like, it sounds like, because I've had a journey through medicine and in, in, in ways that I never thought I would my my wife got ALS a few years ago and passed away in 2020 Wow, I'm so I'm sorry. Thank you and and like our journey through the doctors and and all the testing and the things that, that weren't found or you know the thing the, I just I came away so disillusioned with modern medicine and the way that I think with ALS, it's a tough one because we have no idea what causes it. So it's very difficult to treat and it's, you know, it's terminal. And, but at the same time, I felt like a lot of times my wife was just there to be, you know, poked and prodded and like, now what's the, what's, you know, how how bad are you this month, you know? And so it, it really kind of turned me away from uh, med- medicine and modern medicine, especially. And, and it sounds like you kind of had a little bit of that same experience and maybe with your family and and things and going through cancer and other things, is that sort of also been driving you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I've had this many issues within my own family, you know, middle, a middle class family, like not rich, but not poor, how, how are others dealing with this? How are those beneath the poverty line dealing with this? You know, everywhere I turn now that I'm kind of started to talk of about people entering a space, everybody I meet has a, a crazy health story. And then it, you know, I started looking at the numbers. Sixty percent of Americans have a chronic illness. Yeah, it's amazing. Thirty percent of Americans, so fifty percent of that sixty percent have two or more.
1: Wow.
2: Everyone's dealing with health issues and going on a journey. And Western medicine can work wonders, there's no doubt. You know, I hear the Western med- medicine miracle stories as well. Um, but it's not the only path, it's one of many different paths. And my hope at love is to expose the other paths.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that the parallel here is with like the financial world and then crypto, right? Crypto is not looking to replace Wall Street or the dollar, but it's an alternative. It's an alternative system for people who want to use it. And exactly, uh, sounds like what you're doing with love. So was there an aha moment for love down or, or like, or was it just a slowly building process where you finally like it crystallized for you? Or how, how did you like, what was the spark to, to start this?
2: I was brainstorming with some friends, you know, on how we can solve this health crisis. One of the things that I enjoy doing is talking about the world's problems. Like if my past time is spent doing that. So a lot of the companies that I've started have kind of spawned from those conversations. Not that I have the hubris to think that I can, but I do have enough determination to think that I can make a dent. Or I, I at least have the obligation to try. I, was, you know, I came up with we came up with this concept of an alternative medicine uh, marketplace. Doesn't really exist today. They're independent companies that are on, have their own marketing, but there's no Amazon-like destination for alternative medicine. So obviously, it's diff- going to be far different than Amazon. It's about healing and quality, but there's still there's no. Marketplace destination, so that was one concept, and then yeah, the other concept just started to manifest around you know my background in crypto, and I've done a lot of work with DAOs. I started a DAO recently called the Peace DAO, which had tremendous impact in uh, doing work in Ukraine and okay, Poland, cool. and I saw how a DAO could be used to have impact. And make a dollar go a really long way i'm like why can't we apply it here
0: let's explain that a little more for for listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with it but a DAO is it's basically a collective of people and it's, it's meant to be sort of horizontal in leadership and then decentralized as the name is a decentralized autonomous organization which is i hate that term i think it's like a terrible term that coders came up with it's like crowdsourcing but it's not like crowdsourcing at the same time um but it, it so people gather around a common idea um, like Love Dow where you want to investigate and fund research into alternative therapies for diseases or for mental health. And so then everyone will kind of come and collect around that and, and work on different parts of that problem. Am I getting that right, Ryan, in, in your experience?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a collective of people that, Gets things done with a little bit more sophistication and tooling than a Reddit group or Facebook group, which is where a lot of chronic sufferers or health interest groups live. Here on a DAO, you can pull funds together. You could elect officials to perform certain functions for the group. You can also uh, propose projects to fund. You can fund the projects with reserve funds that the DAO collected through token sales. So it's finance meets community and a new way for people to get things done as a
0: group. Yeah, that's the one, that's the cool crypto angle here is that it, it's, it's an organization that can have an underlying you know, crypto embedded within it or it's in the treasury, you know, whether it's ether or a coin that you make yourself or you could sell NFTs to raise money. What are some of the projects that you guys wanna tackle first um, at LoveDAO?
2: We are very open-minded. Once again, it's not really what do we want to tackle, but what does the community want to tackle? We're looking at a wide spectrum from long COVID to chronic fatigue syndrome to depression and uh, you name it across the board. We're looking at herbs and plants, homeopathic solutions, uh, repurposing existing uh, approved drugs, for other use cases, we're kind of drinking from the fire hose right now because we realize there's so much, so many options out there that haven't been given any love by pharma, no pun intended. (laughs) And uh, we're just like, yeah, which one, which one do we start with? It's like such a hard choice. Ultimately, it'll be the community who decides.
0: Is the community in the DAO? are they going to be participants in like the trials you're thinking, like, or, or the drug trials, or where does the, if I'm a DAO member of Love DAO, where, what am I, what am I doing? Like, can I be a part of like a, a clinical trial, or am I there to sort of like help run the DAO and raise funds and do stuff like that, or is it both, or?
2: It's both. I mean, you're there, you can kind of choose your own adventure. That's a beauty of these communities. Um, the main function as a community member, is to participate in discussion, get other people on board, promote the DAO, help it raise funds. Those are kind of the basics. Then if you want to get involved in proposing things and writing proposals that you'd like the DAO to consider, that's another level. If you'd like to be an elected official that governs the DAO, reviews proposals, makes recommendations to the DAO, You'll work to build your reputation in the community enough to become an elected official.
0: Are you you issuing a coin to raise money for the treasury? Is that the idea?
2: Um, Yes. I mean, we're not issuing it as love group. This DAO is going to be launched independently in a decentralized way and tokens will be purchasable on a bonding curve. Anybody can go purchase the token um, at a price set by a bonding curve. The price goes up, as more tokens are, as each incremental token is purchased, the price will kind of go up.
0: How are you guys thinking about the securities laws um, with with that sort of setup? Because as, as I understand it from what I've read, token holders would potentially benefit from any, you know, um, any revenue that you guys end up generating, like say from a therapy that's successful.
2: So in the beginning, we're just focusing on non-patentable, non-commercializable uh, trials. So testing turmeric, testing vitamins, testing breath work. Um, there's going to be no commercialization component. So it's purely an impact DAO an impact token. Okay. Um, love the, the marketplace is a separate entity, separate company that's going to sell products, but that's completely different than the DAO itself. Now, in the future, there may be iterations of the DAO where You know, there's revenue share back to the participants, but that is not a part of the launch. And that is in no way, you know, something we're definitely doing. It's just kind of in the exploration phase. It's purely a social impact out where people buy tokens because they want to see if some plant or some natural way of living can treat a thing.
0: Another point here um, is I was telling a friend of mine about you and what was going on. she pointed out that patient costs are really expensive in drug trials. You know, they can be like $50,000 per person. Is, is that something that you're going to be getting to at some point? Or are you trying to, to maybe reimagine that as a process as well?
2: Listen, there's so much work to be done. Once again, drinking from the fire hose. So yes, absolutely. I think there's, So many ways we can bring down the cost of trials. There's decentralized clinical trials, which is a new thing. The first few decentralized trials have been done where patients don't have to show up to a facility but are logging their behaviors and their feedback on an app. That, I think, could bring down the cost considerably. So in the beginning, we're probably going to do traditional clinical trials. We'll probably use another group that does the trials and recruit patients locally and you know members of the doubt could volunteer but don't necessarily have to and eventually i i think there is so much opportunity for reinvention that uh, we will uh we will be able to you know drive down cost and increase efficiency and all those great things
0: one of the main promises at least of crypto is is sort of targeting industries that are you know very heavy on the middleman and i don't mean to Come after you know pharma or, or medicine too much, but it does seem that it's incredibly centralized and it's incredibly driven by profits. Of a you know, if if a company, a drug company is going to put in you know millions of dollars in research and time and years, they obviously want to you know capitalize on that. But it does seem to me that that why is that the only way? You know, the only way. It seems like there should be alternate ways of going about this as well.
2: Absolutely, you know. Once again, those businesses and those profit-seeking machines do great things. They create great technology. They fund important life-saving devices and drugs and therapies. But profits also skew incentives, right? Profits are not directly aligned with healing. And so it's just like the big uh, soft drink companies. I say there's nothing soft about a soft drink. (laughs) <laughs> so if you're the executive team and you're deciding to put more sugar or less, more sugar costs you nothing and is going to 2x your sales, what are you going to do? Going to put more sugar, right? And uh, that, that sugar kills people, right? And there's not too much you can do because you have a fiduciary duty to shareholders to drive profits. You've just drove profits. The consumers are making their own choices for their own health. We have an uneducated consumer base who are making unhealthy choices. That's kind of the root problem of all of this that's going on. Um. So same thing happens in pharma. If you have an addictive pill versus a non-addictive pill, you're gonna choose the addictive one.
0: Yeah. Uh, because
2: time. you're gonna uh, be able to charge more. I mean, that's why we have an opioid crisis in this country. Yeah. Is we're using uh, addictive opioids when in other countries around the world, there are non-addictive alternatives that are being used. But the problem is those aren't patentable and they don't make as much money. Yeah. With the good comes the bad. We need an alternative.
0: I think that's a great place to leave it, Ryan. Um, really fascinating talking to you and, and best of luck with, with LoveDAO. Um, I think it, it's one of the more interesting use cases that I've heard of for a DAO. Um, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time and, and good luck to you.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. Such a pleasure chatting, and we'll
1: see you soon. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at That's decential.io. That's D E C E N T I A L.io. And on Twitter at decential. Have a great day.